This is the Breaking Labels Podcast, and I'm Rosanna Gill. Each episode, we'll discuss labels that have confined the stories of my guests at one point or another and their journeys to thrive beyond them. Some labels are external, and others we put on ourselves as limiting beliefs. But regardless of where the label comes from, we're here to break it because we were meant for so much more. Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of the Breaking Labels podcast. I have been waiting for this episode for weeks now. And if you are new to the podcast, you picked a heck of an episode to start with. So welcome. Today is part one of a multi-part series called A Different Perspective. And the gist of this is people submitted scenarios and questions about race and ethnicity. And I have two amazing women who are, who agree to discuss the topics and the questions with me. And you, the listener, get the benefit of hearing this insight and this discussion, which I hope opens the line of communication for you with people in your own life. And I have to tell you, I have learned so much from the conversation with Lori and Catherine, but not as much as I thought I would about other people. I've actually learned a lot more about myself and some of the beliefs and thoughts that I didn't even realize I had or was oblivious to. So I hope this episode in this series serves you. And if you have questions that you would like to be discussed in an extension of this series, then reach out. You can email me at rosanna at breakinglabelspodcast.com. But with that, let's jump into this amazing conversation with Catherine and Lori. I am so, so appreciative to have Catherine Montgomery and Lori Harris here tonight, or starting this different perspective series. And just to give a little background to anybody who's not familiar with it, I really wanted to do this series to have conversations that are started by questions that people have about race and ethnicity. Because my personal experience growing up was that it wasn't that people didn't have questions about race or ethnicity. It's just that sometimes they were afraid to ask them because they didn't want to ask it the wrong way. They didn't want to be called a racist if they asked it, or they didn't know if asking it was offensive, which was always ironic to me because the questions didn't usually bother me nearly as much as the finite statements and assumptions people would make. Mm -hmm. So I thought, why not make it so that So anyway, it was important to me to provide a way and a space for people to ask questions without fear of that. Now, social experiment hypothesis did not work because I created a anonymous box or anonymous link that people could use and submit their questions anonymously. No one used them. So the questions that we have, people were upfront enough to offer them to me and they're still going to be anonymous on the episode. But I just thought that was interesting. Here I am thinking that, oh, so many questions are going to come in anonymously and no. If they felt comfortable enough to ask them of me, they were willing for us to discuss them. So I'm very excited to have both of you discussing this with me. Just to give listeners a background, Catherine Montgomery is a DEI advocate and strategic communicator focused on social justice causes. And Lori Harris is a transformational coach who works with women of color who are high achieving visionaries and want more out of life. So I can't really think of two better people to dive into this. Thank you to both of you. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Okay, so let's dive in. The first listener submission, I will just read the scenario and then we'll we'll talk about it. They wrote, I am getting to know a black man. I don't know how to take his own propensity to stereotype other black men in his life. Kind of like, and she quote, quoted, now I know why my teacher for my dissertation is late in getting us the information. It's because he's black. I grew up in a largely white community and don't try to stereotype anyone, but I don't have the experience he has as a black man who grew up in Detroit. So it makes me uncomfortable that he's drawing boxes like this, but not sure it's my place to address it. Oof. (laughs) (laughs) I know there's a lot there. (laughs) That's that's quite loaded. And, and I think she's smart to ask the question. I mean, I think it's a really good question. It's a really good question. I think it's strange that she mentions he's from Detroit and he, she's 
doing the same thing kind of that he's doing in a way and that she's assuming, oh, he's from Detroit. He must have had some kind of tough upbringing um, just because Detroit is Detroit. So it's like we all have those unconscious biases that we don't even think about. I do think that in this guy's case, he... uh, you know, just like anyone, we put it, we put ourselves down just in case something happens. So I'm gonna mm. I'm gonna say this just in case I'm late or I do something that people think black men do, um, even if he doesn't believe it. So like, oh, I'm gonna not you know get a home run or something like that just in case I don't get a home run or I don't do something. So it's just kind of to cushion yourself, protect yourself. That's a yeah. really interesting point. Sorry, you go ahead, Lori. I just think that as a black woman, woman of color living in the United States, that we're not really totally responsible for the world that we grow up in. We, we come here, we have to experience it. It's a multi-ethnic, multicultural uh, country, but we have a lot of problems that revolve around race and it affects all of us. And I think that all of us, people of color and white people, I would imagine, are coming to grips with the negative impact of white supremacy. So there is this presumption that when you say white supremacy, I know that I struggled with thinking, oh, it's just like, you know, the Klan or burning crosses mm-hmm. or doing something really extreme and, or tiki torch guys in, in the South. And and now I'm come to, I've come to realize and accept within me that there is a bias that when you grow up in this country and you're surrounded by images that don't include you, and those are the images that we are trained to aspire toward, you start thinking, oh, that's the good thing. That's the good way. That's the best way. That it's very common in people of colors, black people's homes to be told, you have to work twice as hard to give half as much. Just know this know that this is what your experience is going to be and don't accept, don't expect anything else. And so if, if that's what you come to believe that you don't, you don't think that the world is going to be fair. You don't think that the people are going to see you as competent from the very beginning. You also put that on other people, whether you intend to or not. So perhaps her colleague, this black man is dealing with his own negative feelings or beliefs about people of color. Mm-hmm. He has not yet challenged himself to say, is that true? Is it true about me? And do I believe it about everyone just based on knowing that they're a person of color? He, he's not there yet. But I, I suspect they seem like young people to me. And <laughs> they sound like young people. And I just kind of assume that they are. And I suspect that it's just a growth thing. And as he goes on as a professional in, in the professional world, that he'll develop a language and a confidence to believe in himself and not to presume negatively of other people. What do you think, Catherine? Does that sound crazy or did I even make any sense? <laughs> no, no, I thought that was right on. I do believe it's a confidence thing and they do seem young, like they just haven't experienced the world and they're just kind of listening to outside voices who are kind of dictating what they think about, you know, people of color. And he's kind of projecting that on other people. He believes it maybe probably in himself as well. And it'll just take time for him to gain that confidence. I know that when I was younger, I thought all negative things about, you know, being a woman of color, a person of color. You know, I remember my dad asking me if I wanted to be, you know, black or white. And I said white because that's all I knew. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's what I want to be. That's like the best thing. Right. (laughs) And it took me growing up and, you know, getting out of my bubble in the South to realize that it's amazing to be a black woman. Like there are difficulties, but it makes me stronger. There's so many great things about it. And I'm proud of being a Black woman, but it took a long time to do that. And I think for this young man, if he is young, um, young, old, middle-aged, it might take him a little bit longer too. And there, it comes with a little bit of pain. You know, there's, I, 
least in my experience, there's no way to have those kind of negative stereotypes and impressions without feeling a little bit of sorrow or, or pain. You know, it's like, I don't want to believe that. There's a part of me that knows it, it cannot inherently be true that I'm less than just because of my appearance. And it's painful to, to think that people might think that of me, but I'm gonna overcome it. And so I'm gonna first overcome it within myself, and then I'm gonna prove it to other people. That's it. That's yeah, so and that's hard to want to have to prove it. That's so hard. Why should I have to prove more than you know my other my colleague or you know the person down the street? Why should I have to try harder? It's just every day thinking about that and knowing that you're gonna probably end up in the same position, but you have to just try harder. You have to do things a certain way. You have to talk a certain way. You have to. It's just difficult on a daily basis, and it's a struggle. It is, and it it's, and it just is. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, there isn't. Absolutely, keep going. <laughs> yeah. So, going back to your point about her mentioning where he's from, I also think part of that is that they grew up in a more rural area, mm. where it. I don't get the impression that it was very mixed race wise. Mm-hmm. So I, and to your point, Catherine, because it's funny, because I didn't think of it from that perspective of assumptions of what it would be like, but I did think that there was something like, well, if he's from a big city or, uh, you know, it maybe it's different there. I don't know, but. Yeah, I, I just heard urban. Mm. area. But yeah. uh, Catherine's right. It could be a lot more loaded. But look at all these different perspectives, you know, like my first, <laughs> my first uh, assumption is like, she's being racist, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, and we were all like urban and then you're like, oh, just a big city. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but doesn't that show the different lens that we look at things, right? I think that that's sometimes the big and and one of the questions that, or one of the kind of the the comments that we'll discuss later is somebody saying like, are things really that loaded? And I, when I had the discussion one-on-one with the person, I said, growing up, there were a lot of things that I didn't think were real. And then I became an adult and I was out of my buzzle, bubble and I started realizing that there were code words that people would use. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not racist, but I'm going to use this code word to mean someone who's black. Right. And some of them were pretty blatant and aggressive and disgusting. And some were just a lot more politically correct and a lot more polite, quote unquote. But, but, you know, I'm I'm significantly older than you two. And I still had that experience of certain things being said to me and just like went way over my head and come back and tell my dad, well, so-and-so called me sunshine. Lorianne, that's racist. You go home and you you go back there and you tell him he calls you Miss Harris and nothing else. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I didn't know. I thought it was like a nice pet name. It's like, no, it's not. Yeah. And you don't need a pet name at work. Can you tell me what sunshine means? Because I would not have, I would have been like, I'm sunny and happy. <laughs> I think it's kind of minstrelly, you know, like grinning. Oh, you know, oh but I didn't get it. You know, like, hey, sunshine, you know, like, not nice. And, and perhaps, the men didn't know it, mm-hmm. but it has that history. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I once had a legal client keep calling me, Lori this, Lori that, Lori this, Lori that. And I said, look, I always call you by your last name. I'm asking you to refer to me as Miss Harris. Don't call me Lori ever again. I'm Miss Harris. Or you can call me Attorney Harris. Don't call me Lori ever again. And he says, oh, well, I'm sorry, I just know a girl named Lori and um, she reminds me of you. And I said, well, I don't know why you're hanging around with children, but I'm a grown woman. And And then he was like, I can call you girl if I want to. I said, you're not from here, you don't know, but that has a very loaded history in the United States. And you might want to check yourself. And he, Blake said, I want to call your supervisor. He said, sure. And so I gave him the name of my supervisor who happened to have a French last name, but he was a black man from Arkansas. And so. (laughs) (laughs) 
love and he called and my client called me back and says, I'm so sorry, I had no idea. I will never do that again. <laughs> Good for you. I love That's that. amazing. Yeah. Now, yeah. one thing I did want to say also, because I thought of this when when she submitted it was I remember as a kid and growing up the way my mom was treated as a black woman. And I would hear the language of, well, she's an exception. She's not like other blacks. She's different. I can play with you because your mom isn't like other blacks. And I would be like, what, what does that mean? And I always had this guilt, like, am I supposed to be appreciative that you're making an exception? Or am I supposed to be angry? And I never really knew how to feel, but, and I just, I, I told her, I said, you know, I, I, I have to wonder if for him, is he also sort of trying to impress you by distancing himself from what he thinks that you assume other blacks are? Because if he's been in a situation like my mother was where whites have told him, you're not like other blacks, you're different. Has there been a part of him that's internalized? Well, maybe I'm a little bit better and I need to distance myself more to be accepted. And I hope that's not the case, but I'm not so sure no. that it couldn't be a possibility. The truth is, it's for me, uh, I'm gonna keep it in the eye. Mm -hmm. There is an aspect of, I, got, I guess they call it code switching now, but you know, mm -hmm. when I was younger, I thought I was bilingual. And <laughs> because I knew how to speak with people who were outside of my home versus how I spoke with the people that were my people. And I loved it. I loved that aspect mm -hmm. of our language and vernacular. And I loved it. But there are people who do not. And I know that my mother, when she named me, was being very intentional with how she named me. And I'm named after a soap opera character. And in 1961, there were no black soap opera characters, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and when, you know, 30 years later, I'm naming my own daughter, I'm naming her something that I, I said out loud, her resume will not go into the trash can just because of her name. And, you know, here I am 30 years later thinking, you know, I've changed my speech. I have an anglicized name. I speak the King's English. And yet and still, there's nothing that I can do that's gonna make me any more acceptable or not. And, and so it's not a compliment. And I reject your opportunity that you provide me with to exclude my people. I love these people. I love everything about them. And, you know, I love the ones who don't speak the King's English and wouldn't know the difference and, and have no desire to. I love the ones that twerk. I love the ones that are very colorful. I love the ones that will tell you off in a heartbeat. I love all of them because it is the celebration of what it is to, to come to this country and to fully embody, I have every right to be here just as I am, damn it. Yeah. Take it or not. Yeah, I grew up being told that I talk white and I got that from white people and black people, my family and like cousins and everything. Like, why do you talk that way? So I never felt like I fit in. And it was like, if I'm going to talk white, then I might as well hang around the white people, you know, at least like they're not, I talk like them. So, and then as I, you know, kept growing up, I never really thought people were being mean and I miss a lot of the negative connotation around things. I was just naive to it. And so I think when it came to, oh, me assuming that Detroit was, she was trying to, you know, suggest that he was from a black city and so he's going to act a certain way. I think now I just assume everyone's being negative. Like I, like I see that both of you give people the benefit of the doubt. Like you're like, maybe they do mean they sunshine. They don't know what it means. And they, you know, are just saying it to be nice. But I would just assume now, like, no, that person's being racist. Like, and I'm going to say you're being racist and I'm going to walk away. And then, you know, it's time to like pick it up, like <laughs> do all the things. And, you know, people might not think that, but I honestly, I watched so many documentaries. I just watched MLK versus the FBI, you know, and it just makes you so upset and just 
I assume I assume that everybody's against me, against everybody of color. And it's what a I, bad place to be. What I struggle with is that this, what appears to be a lack of sensitivity to the fact that things are hard, that they are actually harder for us. They just are. And while I have never been white, I do know what my experience is. And I do know that there are lots of people who walk through the world who never question when they're mistreated, if it's happening to them because they're a person of color, or if it's happening to them because they're a, a person of color and a woman. I know lots of people who that's not their, their experience. Redlining is alive and well in Los Angeles. And I love my neighborhood. I don't want to live anywhere else. But the truth is, I pretty much live where I can live, you know. <laughs> so, uh, Do you mind explaining so exactly what redlining is for somebody who who doesn't know? Oh, redlining refers to a policy that the government and private industries engaged in to say where people of color may live, and they cannot cross this red line on a map. Mm-hmm. And so it could be. A, a result of whether or not you're going to qualify for a loan, mm-hmm. whether or not you're going to be able to get um, insurance, but it's very distinct lines that are drawn in, in particular communities to say, oh, we're preserving this. We hold this back for ourselves. You, you cannot come in. Now, does that mean that no one ever gets in? Oh, no, it doesn't. Tom Bradley was the first mayor, the first black mayor of the city of Los Angeles. And in the 60s, he used a straw person to hold his place in escrow to buy a house that still had restrictive covenants on it for a neighborhood that legally he was not entitled to move into. And that and some of these covenants still exist in Los Angeles. They're not honored and abided by, but they're still on the books. So, and being Mm -hmm. a woman who lives in the United States is complicated. I I do want to plug a resource because the only reason I know currently what redlining is, I remember vaguely hearing about in high school history, but there is an amazing book called The Color of the Law. And it just came out a few years ago. And it was I have to take it in pieces, to be honest, because I get so angry. Mm-hmm. And and kind of like you were saying, Catherine, like, it's all out to get. Like, when people are like, well, everybody's had the same advantages. And I'm like, read this book. <laughs> oh, no. No, it has been in our oh, no. law in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Like, like, legislators have found ways to divide people. What's going on with voting rights right now? Yeah. That, the same. That, it, on the face of it, it may look neutral, but it isn't. No, but it isn't, and so it, it's just really, and and still, Catherine and I get up every day and and face it because we don't have a choice, and so mm-hmm. we sit back and be bogged down and say, "Oh God, everything is so unfair," and only we would suffer for it, or the people that we would serve would not get mm-hmm. to have our gifts because we didn't show up fully for ourselves. Yeah, but it's happening. We can't pretend like it's not happening. It's, does it, that doesn't make it go away because we don't. We refuse to acknowledge it. Right. And I, I now find power in it. You know, I used to back away from it, but now it's motivating me to succeed at work, to go to school, get my MBA, to start my own business, to, you know, just... I don't know, be more confident in myself. Like it's it's really transformed my life. Like really accepting who I am is amazing. And it it takes time. Like it's not overnight and it's just, it's so difficult. And I think we all just have to give ourselves that leeway and, you know, understanding that it's not easy. And, you know, I think about my parents and all they had to go through and how, you know, they had it even harder than, you know, I do. I had, I have so many advantages that, you know, they didn't have or, you know, the generation before them. And I think how, you know, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, we were slaves, like our, you know, I mean, it was so, you know, I think it's, it's very important to me that that is understood. It was not a long time ago. 
And so when I say that, I say it because I was born in 1961. My father was born in 1937. He was born a sharecropper in South Carolina and stayed there until he was five years old. Now, sharecropping is glorified slavery, okay? <laughs> Let's just be real. <laughs> it's like you always are in debt. You never get out of debt. You always owe. You're working the land for someone else who owns the land for their benefit. And they the system is set up to not cut you a fair shake. You're not business partners. Let's put it that way. Right. So... No, it wasn't a long time ago. And it's important for us to understand that when we look at different behaviors that are prevalent in different communities. So um, you may find that the one thing that I find that's really heartbreaking is that we still have a lot of physical abuse happening within a family structure in black families in particular. And for me, when you put that together, it's like, my grandmother was born in 1913. She had a third grade education and she's got problems. So when her children are misbehaving and she goes to physical abuse to whip them into shape, literally whip them into shape. One, she's dealing with Jim Crow and all of the fear that's attached to that. And she's modeling what's been modeled for her out of slavery. It's mm -hmm. not that far away. And so for my generation and, and subsequent generations to make a conscious decision to be different, to parent different, requires effort. And it is the result of socialization and education to come to a place where, you know what, I, I, I don't want to use that as a, a discipline tool in my toolbox with dealing with my children. I choose not to. That's a huge thing. And still people to this day are running around talking about spare the rights, spare the child. It's like, that's some slave shit. I'm sorry. But yeah. <laughs> you can curse. That's crazy. But yeah. it is. I mean, do you think that's a privilege though to be able to not whip your children or not think that that's the way to mm. you know, get them to act right or whatnot? It's a privilege in that I have the room to pause and to think and to consider who do I want to be? It, I mean, I remember there's a woman, her name is Erica Chitty, and she runs an organization called The Loom. And it's basically to empower women to know more about their bodies and how their bodies work and reproduction and birthing. And so she's wonderful. And I was having dinner with her one night and talked to her about, oh, well, when I was going through birth training, I did the Bradley method. And she said, Laura, you realize that's a very privileged thing. And I said, me? Privileged, really? She goes, yes, Lori, that's very privileged. And, and it was hard for me to hear because all I was thinking is, well, you know, it's the early 90s. It's pre-equal pre access to the internet. So the fact that I found out about the Bradley method was a big deal. And she's like, yeah, it's a big deal. And it's also a big deal that you have the resources to find out about it, to get the book, to go to the classes, to get training, and to be the woman who steps into, this is who I am, this is how I will be treated in the birthing room. I claim that for myself. All that is privilege. So you're right, Catherine. There's a lot of privilege in deciding to be this person. You know, I'm a life coach. And what I do is I work with people to create an image of what they would love to have in their life. Mm -hmm. And then we work toward that. Even if it looks impossible, we work toward what you really, really would want. And I suggest to you that my mom is doing the same thing. In 1959-60, when she's getting married at 18 and venturing out of her city and going off with her husband, it's from my estimation, it is a stupid idea for two teenagers to go get married and go off and make a life. But to her, it made perfect sense. And so no one told her about a vision board. I think her vision board was the soap operas. Well, that looks like mm -hmm. a really great life. Look at those people. They 
the mom stays home and she doesn't go to work and the husband goes to work and when he comes home, he has dinner for them and she takes care of the children. That's not a life that my mother grew up with, but it's certainly a life that she wanted to create for herself. Mm-hmm. There's no estimation that anyone could call my mother privileged except in the fact that she made a decision of who she was going to be. And she changed her speech pattern. She changed her way of thinking and how she carried herself. And where she came from was like, that's over there. I'm not doing that anymore. Lorianne, this is who we are. This is what we do. This is how we talk. And she just like created it out of nothing. And and I'm not even like close to my mom, but I have to give her props for what she did. She created something out of nothing. Yeah. I mean, I think my parents had the room to think about what they were going to do, like how they would discipline me and my brother, and they still chose to spank us, <laughs> you know? So I, you know, they, I mean, it, my mom would wait and say, your dad's coming home and, you know, it'd be hours later. And I would just sit there like thinking about it, crying. And, and then he would come home and I would get a spanking. So it was like, eight hours of his work day, he had to think about it because I'm sure my mom told him. And then I think about nowadays, like if that same thing happened, like my dad were to spank me and somebody saw him, they would think, oh, child abuse. And I think that's a white person thing. Like, I mean, my family or somebody black isn't going to think that it's child abuse. Like that's a privileged thing. Like, I mean, I, I, so I think it's just a different perspective. I personally, if I had children, who knows? Like, <laughs> if I was playing them or not, I don't want to. I wouldn't want to. But I mean, I think it's a little bit circumstantial. But to me, I think the ability to choose how you discipline your children, you know, even being able to watch soap operas, like you have to have a TV to do that. <laughs> and I was thinking the whole time, like, that's privilege. <laughs> I mean, I think it's important for us to 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 look at that 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 lens that we are here. We are living in the United States. It does tinge everything. It doesn't seem equal. It doesn't seem fair. It's it's true. It doesn't. And yet and still we do have to first decide what we want. And then when we decide what we want, then we start taking steps toward it, even if it seems kind of impossible. So here you are, this woman who's getting your MBA and starting a side hustle. She and already has it, for the record. You already have it? Mm-hmm. Oh, great. See? And all these things. But I know, Catherine, I just met you today. And I know that there are people in your sphere from high school who are like, well, did that. Wish I could do that. And you're just looking at him like, well, what's stopping you? I know, do it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it's born in you. I can. There are things in your mind that like are bubbling up, like, do I want that? Can I have that? But it wasn't MBA. MBA was like, that's doable. I can do that. Yeah. And so it's just a matter of where you set the line, where you set the bar. And so is it some, some of it is mindset, some of it is privilege, but you went, you went to some kind of school, may not have been the best of schools, but you went to some kind of school where the idea was born in you. It's like, I could try. Maybe you went to the best school ever. You went to the best prep school ever. And it was assumed, but Mm. I love this place because all you need is one person to say, you know what? I think you could go to college. Or I think you'd be a really great dancer. Or I think, and and if you're willing to take the steps, you can really change your life here. I agree. I owe everything to my parents. Like I, like I saw what they did going to college. You know, I, you know, my dad was the only child, but it, my mom was the only one out of six who went to college. And you know, just making it work and being successful. Like they never had any limitations that they put on me or my brother. You know, we could do whatever we wanted to, achieve whatever we wanted to, and they would be there for us. And so many people don't have that. And 
Um, I want to think that if I didn't, I would still, you know, be in the same position, but I don't know. And I'm thankful that I had them in my life to lead me down the right path, but it also does take hard work. And I think uh, that's forgotten sometimes of, you know, you have to, you can have people cheering you on, but you have to put in the effort yourself to do it. I also think that sometimes we're not told or some people don't get the information that it's okay if you fall down. It's okay if you fall down. It's okay if you have a misstep. It's okay if you officially fail or you really, really screw up. You can do, you can still do it. You can do it again. And, and you can expect to fall down, but it's a good thing to fall down. Sometimes, especially I think when you're coming from a very impoverished background, sometimes you you all geared up to do something and then you just think it's like, okay, now I'm just going straight this way. And then we fail to prepare people for it. it, it you know, it's still going to be great. I'm still going to love you if you if you have a misstep. We'll just get back up and figure it out together. When I was working in juvenile, that's what I noticed with the kids. That sometimes they would do something, they would be on the path, they'd be doing so great. And then they have a little misstep. And we made such a big deal out of how great they were doing that they didn't want to face us when they had a misstep. And so they just disappear. And I think that we have to train people for all of it, for the good, for the bad, for the the trail, for the messiness of the trail. The failure is a part of it. You have to have that. Yeah. And it's good. But if you don't know it's coming, it's heartbreaking. It's so tough. It is. It really really is. And I was lucky because I saw my dad like start over, over, over. You know, it's like he's getting his degree and we're stationed here. And then they said, okay, two years, never going to move over there. And so then you got to start all over again sometimes. And this college isn't taking those credits. And you got, and you just kept going. Yeah. You got me, Lori, when you were talking about your mom and like how she created her own vision board. And it made me think a lot about my mom. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much TV they had, but I mean, she's one of 16. Like I, I, I'm sure that they did watch TV. She's second oldest to 16. And oh, wow. she, but I, I, in hindsight, are looking at her life now, like fanning herself. <laughs> <laughs> but everything my mom did was very intentional. And she was always very particular about the way she spoke. Mm-hmm. She was always very particular and she had a great aunt who really kind of mentored her and would like taught her how to dress and how you carry yourself and just mm-hmm. the way that you show up in the world. And when I was growing I growing up, I grew up in South Carolina. I didn't have an accent when I was growing up because my mom would correct me. Anytime mm-hmm. she heard the slightest Southern accent, she would, don't do that. People are going to think you're your country. Don't do it. So I didn't have an accent until I went to college and my mom wasn't there correcting me every step of the way. But like she put me in social. She made, she sold praline so I could take piano, all these things. Mm-hmm. Cause she was like, Oh no, like I'm setting you up for something. Right. And I know what you're going to need for that. Right. It's so funny. Cause I kind of walked both sides of the line when I as a mother, as a parent, you know? And so there were things that I wanted my daughter to do, to have experiences, to feel comfortable in any setting. That was fine. But then I, there's, I'd only go so far with it. So they're like, okay, well, you've been invited to go to Jack and Jill. Hell no, I'm not doing that. Okay, <laughs> Lori, do you want to do links? No, do I look like I belong in the links? You know, <laughs> I don't know what got into me. And so I can only go so far. <laughs> Hi there. So before I proceed to the next question or scenario that I will discuss with Lori and Catherine, I wanted to take a moment to point something out. If you remember when I was getting all riled up about that book, The Color of the Law, which I do highly recommend, it wasn't until I listened back to it and heard myself say, you know, I have to take it in pieces. I get so angry. I have to put it down sometimes. And listening back to it, I was struck by my own privilege in that. And it never occurred to me that my ability 
to read something, to read about experiences that are real, that have happened, that do happen, and to say, oh, it's just too much for me. I can't handle it. You know, I'm going to have to come back to this. That's a privilege because in doing so, I am saying I have the ability to close this book literally and figuratively and to not feel the pain that has been experienced because I don't personally experience it. And that is what privilege is. I wanted to point that out because I've heard that so many times. I have obviously said that where something just seems so intense and so unfair and it's so easy to say, oh, I just can't deal with it. It's too much. All right. If that's the case, just wonder then if it's too hard for me to sit with it, to keep reading to the next paragraph, what must it be like for the person who has to live it every single day? What is that like? All right, on to the next scenario. All right. Well, we actually already kind of touched on this one was sort of a question. When someone says you're not like other Blacks or makes you out to be an exception, has that happened to you? And if so, what bothered you most about it? So we already touched on it, but specifically, do you mind sharing any experiences? Or No, I mean, I mentioned this before, but it was you know, growing up saying that I talk white, you know, like, why aren't you like your other people? Like, why do your parents have jobs? Like, you know, like, oh, good jobs. Why... Are you able to go to this private school? Why are you able, you know, all these different things. Like why, 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 why? Like every black person is just impoverished. Like, I don't know why you are in these circumstances. My mom owns her own business in, you know, very rural Alabama. And she has Trump supporters who come into her office all the time. And they're so surprised when they see her. They're like, oh, are you the cleaning person or the, you know, like, what's your role here? And she's like, well, I own it. Yep, this is my business. <laughs> and she has patience of an angel because <laughs> I would have knocked somebody out, but she's just like, here's a mask. <laughs> you can't come in without it. And I don't care who you support. And she's just, you know, does her thing. And every day is just amazing. I think she's really, you know, proud of herself. I mean, and she should be of, you know, owning a business that sh all types of people have to rely on her to do their work. She She's an accountant and does, you know, taxes for them and for certain people to have to rely on a Black woman to deliver, you know, something they have to do annually is, it's amazing. And I'm so proud of her. And, but it happens every day. Like, what is your role? Like, what are, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. Yeah, it's kind of weird that, you know, in 2021 that it's still happening, but it is. And I, I don't know when it's going to not happen. And it happens on both sides. Like, you know, we have our, our black and brown brothers and sisters who will say, oh, you don't sound black. Oh, I didn't expect you to be black. Or are you sure this is you? Because I talked to someone on the phone and um, you're not who I expected. <laughs> you know, it, it happens on both sides. And the truth is that there is no one way to be black or brown or to be American. There is no one thing. And we have to accept that for each other, in each other, and for ourselves. And unfortunately, stepping into a life outside a stereotype is still a political statement. It was for me when I went to law school over 30 years ago. And every time I would go stomping into class every day with a chip on my shoulder, it was because I was claiming my right to be there. And so, yeah, it was a little, it was a little bit heavier for me to be there than just going to school. I was staking my claim every day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I have to stake my claim every day at work. So, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, every it's I mean, every day I have to do that. What are some of the things like the comments that you hear that, again, like that, that blind bias or that implicit bias, like people say, like you were saying, you know, oh, I didn't you don't 
look who, how I thought you would. But when you say staking your claim at work, what are comments or even just facial expressions that you pick up on that that you know people aren't aware of or they're not they don't realize that they're saying what they're really saying when they say it? Oh, I have one. <laughs> so coach training is very expensive. You should know that when people invest in becoming a coach, it's expensive as hell and it takes a long time. So I was at like a continuing education thing. So I'd done the initial one. Now I'm here for continuing it. Ed. And it, we were at a break and this woman came up to me and I was getting refreshments just like she was getting refreshments and I had spilled a little bit of milk as I made my coffee. And so I was cleaning up the milk that I had spilled. As she says to me, oh, you guys are doing such a good job taking such good care of us. We appreciate you so much. I was like, what are you talking about? I'm in here in the conference just like you. What are you talking about? <laughs> I am not the help. <laughs> oh, goodness. And a lot of times, for some people, there's that line from the movie, The Help. Mm-hmm. People are always constantly trying to quote to me. And I'm just like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> they quote uh, the line to you from The Help? Yeah. It's like, you know that saying that the woman says to the girl, you is kind. <laughs> you is kind. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> no, I don't know. No, no, I, I don't know. I don't get that over, like, that. Was, that's very just out there. I don't get that at work. I don't even know that it's that people are, you know, making facial expressions or anything. I think it's just in my mind. I think every day I have to wake up and I have to be a certain way. I have to be authoritative. I have to be confident. I have to do this or that because otherwise I'm just going to get walked all over and I'm going to get passed up for this or that because I don't just have it easy to get the opportunities that everybody else does. I have to work so much harder. So I think it's more of a me thing than it is like people, you know, saying things that I think are maybe racist and them not knowing it. So, Catherine, how do you mentally suit up? You, you're going into work, you're getting ready, you're, you're bracing yourself for dealing with the nonsense you know that's coming. What's it look like for you? Yeah, it's definitely a mental game for me where I just say to myself, you got this, you own this, like you're good at your job. You're great, you know, actually. And you're going to display it in everything that you do during that job. So every time I write a message, I write an email, I respond to something, I lead a meeting, I know that I can do it and that it's going to be amazing and people are going to love it. And <laughs> I just have to have that. I don't even know if that's going to be true, but I, but I believe it. I believe it is. And I don't know if they'll think it, but I have to think that. Otherwise I would cower in a corner every day <laughs> and not say anything. Yeah, and then you don't get what you know that you deserve. You don't don't go where you want to go. Yeah. One of the things I was curious about too, Catherine, with especially you leading DEI, is how do companies facilitate these conversations or do they? Yeah, like large, small. I think a lot of it, you need, most of the time you need the outside facilitator to do it. Mm. You know, having you know, the president of the company or someone in leadership talk about these things. One, people are probably not going to open up because, it, mm-hmm. you know, it's my job on the line, and no matter who you are, what race you are, what gender you are. So having someone from the outside who understands the situations from different perspectives and you feel like you can open up, I think is a good start. But also it takes trust in the company in general. And if mm. you don't have that, just from a leadership standpoint, just from your colleague peer-to-peer standpoint, then it doesn't matter who's going to come in and facilitate anything. Nobody's going to open up because they just aren't invested in the organization. You have to be, you know, loyal. You have to want want to put in the effort to change or to develop. And I think many times um, employees just aren't vested enough. You know, they're there to do their job nine to five and then get out. They're not trying to be better people at the company. They're just, you know, that's cool if you want to try to, you know, develop 
me, but I'm I don't I'm not I don't want to take this time to do that, um, which is very disappointing. But if you do have that trust and you do have that commitment from your employees, um, having someone else come in to help facilitate the conversation and get it started, and for employees to realize that they can be vulnerable at work and not have negative consequences if they do if they are vulnerable when it comes to certain situations around DEI. I think it'll employees will stay longer. They'll, you know, the word of mouth of the organization will become stronger and um, the culture will just flourish and be even more successful than, you know, how much money you're making or anything like that because turnover costs a lot. (laughs) Okay, before signing off for this week and before next week's part two of this conversation with Catherine, and Lori, I wanted to share a couple resources with you that I highly encourage you to use if you, after this conversation thus far, you think, God, I still have more questions and I don't even know where to start to educate myself or to learn more. So let's start with one, the book that I mentioned, The Color of the Law, that is a phenomenal historical resource that I just don't think it gets much better than just really blows your mind about what has happened in this country and what has been legal to happen in this country. That's one. Another one is So You Want to Talk About Race. And man, is that book just blown my mind. And I gotta say, brought me to tears a couple times. And I'll talk about more about that in part three um, of this series. But yes, amazing book, especially if you're grappling with, I have questions, but I don't know how to ask them or where to start. Start there, my friend. It is a phenomenal starting point. And then another podcast that I highly recommend you listen to is the Kinswomen podcast with Hannah and Izu. And they actually are working each episode to break down the gaps between white women, white women and women of color. And yes, that was what I was hoping to do with this, but this is simply a series that is an entire podcast devoted to these conversations. And I got to tell you, it is so good. So good. So yes, please listen to that podcast as well. Also, the links to Catherine and Lori's respective websites are down in the show notes, as well as their social media handles. I highly encourage you to reach out to them. Thank them for being on the podcast. Or if you learn something from them, then tag them, you know, post something on your story and tag us in it. And I would love to hear what you got from this episode. And make sure to follow them before next week's episode. One of the questions we'll be talking about is the question of mulatto and whether it's an offensive term. So come back for part two, y'all. I'm so excited to hear from you. And if you thought this episode was beneficial or had some topics that someone in your, your life would like to hear, then please share the episode. And with that, I will see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.